to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. The cheese box on a raft is a familiar image to anyone who's read about the American Civil War. It was, of course, the USS Monitor, the first ironclad warship to engage in combat with its rival, the CSS Virginia, or Merrimack. It had a short lifespan as a floating vessel, but a long one in American memory. We'll learn today about the story of the Monitor, both before and after its Civil War career, from Hannah Gibson Holloway, co-author of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, the usual world headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio, on the campus of East Carolina University, not representing the university or anyone else, just myself. Our guest will likewise speak only for herself tonight, as we always do here. It is January 2019. The country is gripped in a cold wave of historic proportions. I'm uh, hearing from my mother in Detroit, my younger daughter in Chicago, about absurdly cold temperatures. Down here in North Carolina... 40 degrees. People are not freaking out over that. Some are still wearing shorts to class just to 
show their inability to recognize the weather. But uh, it, it's cold. if it's colder you are, I hope you are, in fact, staying warm, taking care. It's actually dangerously cold. Watching last night as my alma mater uh, defeated Ohio State in basketball in a game in Ann Arbor, the uh, announcer pointed out to the delight of the fans, attention University of Michigan students, no classes tomorrow. I think they said it was the maybe second or third time in 40 years that the school would be closed due to weather. I remember the very first time it closed, uh, first time in its history, uh, was 40 years ago when I was an undergraduate, and we had feet of snow, uh, lots and lots of snow, enough that classes had to be canceled and we could barely get our uh, shorts and uh, boots on in order to walk over to the rec building and play basketball all day, which took all day because everybody on campus was doing the same thing. The lines for a, a pickup game were, you know, 10 deep. Uh, it seemed it was a holiday. It was great fun. Uh, if it's cold where you are, though, do stay warm. Here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, the News of the week is that if you've listened to shows over the last few years, once in a while I do them from home uh, for one reason or another from the the uh, headquarters annex on Oxford Road. And sometimes you hear in the background an unearthly howling. That would have been the sound of Candy the cat. Uh, uh, she is no longer with us as of this week. Uh, after 21 years of harassing the family, uh, she has finally gone on to the cat afterlife. Uh, we we named her Candy uh, because my wife is an English teacher, wanted a literary name. I'm a history professor, wanted a historical name. But when we got her 21 years ago, our daughters were seven and three years old, respectively. They wanted Candy. And so that was it. Uh, candy the cat, uh, RIP as of 2019. Uh, in other news here, thank you to everyone who donated at the end of the last calendar year to help keep up the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund and Libation Fund and Do What I Want To With It Fund. It's not tax deductible. Appreciate all the year-end donors, and if I haven't sent you a personal note yet uh, of, of thanks, I'll, I'll certainly get to that soon. Uh, it's not too late Uh to donate. Uh, it's too late for the year-end, but not too late for the conscience year-end, which uh, goes continuously. It does not have anything to do with the tax year. These are not tax-deductible donations, but uh, if you want to contribute, always welcome. Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and click on the PayPal button. This year's cause, uh, in the past we've donated to Civil War Battlefield Preservation, we've donated to Heritage Hall here at campus, and when I say we, I mean you, you send me money, I put some of it aside for uh, the libations or the books to read while drinking them, and I donate other parts of it to these worthy causes. This year's cause uh, will be the McGregor Public Library in Highland Park, Michigan. It's a library I grew up near. Uh, the first place I saw probably the uh, Bruce Catton Centennial History of the Civil War with those wonderful maps. Uh, I have very warm memories of it. It is a beautiful building. It has been shuttered for years, maybe decades now, uh, just closed up uh, by a 
hapless and ineffectual and economically collapsed uh, government in Highland Park, which is an internal suburb of Detroit. And there's an effort now uh, to try to reopen the building. Uh, You can go on YouTube and find the Friends of McGregor Public Library. Inside, the books are still there after 20, 25 years on the shelf. It's, It's eerie to see the video of it. It would be wonderful to have it restored and reopened uh, for uh, the next generation of people to get interested in history. So I'll be contributing to that, and I'll, I'll share some of your funds for that. Well, looking forward on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, I will be talking with a lot of interesting people and talking myself uh, a little bit. I've been invited to be on a show somewhat like this one, I guess it's, uh, or like the ones that you hear on Voice America before the show comes on, the, the self-help, be the best person that is fabulously inside you trying to get out, you can possibly be a uh, kind of show, and I got an invitation to be a guest on one of those on a different network. Uh, I haven't set that up yet, but I'll keep you posted. I get to be on the other side of the mic for that. Uh, I will be talking with Tom Kearney on WPTF Radio in Raleigh, February 11th, 9 p.m. Uh, I'll be addressing the Petersburg, Virginia Civil War Roundtable on April 4th and the Raleigh, North Carolina Civil War Roundtable on May 13th. So if you're in the area, come by and hear those. Then, of course, then there's always the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, June 14th through 19th, and this hallowed ground, the tour of battlefield sites May 18 through 26. Coming up next week, Aaron Sheehan Dean's new book just arrived in the office today, The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. It looks both interesting and important. I'm very curious to read it and talk about it with you. On the 13th, Dan Weinberg and I will talk Lincoln. Caroline Janey returns to the show on the 20th, and on the 27th of February 2019, Andrew Del Banco and his book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul, From the Revolution to the Civil War. Well, tonight we talk about uh, the famous ironclad ship Monitor. It's, it's nautical archaeology weekend here in Greenville, it seems. There's a a workshop tomorrow at the Queen Anne's Revenge Lab on campus where they have Blackbeard's, uh, remnants of Blackbeard's ship. And another group from campus is going down to Kinston, North Carolina to look at the CSS Noose, uh, another recovered ironclad from the war. More things that I can do in one day, actually, this weekend. And tonight we're talking about the USS Monitor. The book is called Our Little Monitor, in quotation marks, subtitled The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. And before uh, bringing our our guest on in just one second, I want to tell you, uh, listeners, what a nice book this is to to hold on to. Uh, Books, uh, it's, um, I mean, books are great to read, but they also have a, a... a visceral pleasure that you don't get from reading a book online. And this one is filled with color illustrations, printed on glossy paper. It is heavy and compact, heavy for its size, compact, solid. It's just been a pleasure to carry it back and forth uh, to work this week, as well as to read it uh, here in the office and at home. It's uh, a book I'm really happy to have on the shelf, and I predict you will be too. Uh, if you find yourself getting a copy. But let's find out what's inside it by talking to 
uh, one of the two co-authors there, Jonathan W. White and Anna Gibson Holloway. And Dr. Holloway uh, is with us tonight, I hope. Dr. Holloway, are you there? Uh, Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. And first, let me just say condolences uh, to uh, the passing of Candy the Cat. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, for as, as annoying as she was. It, it does leave a hole uh, even when suddenly you're not cleaning the litter box and putting out the food and tending to the many, many needs uh, that a cat imposes. Uh, it, 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 it's, it was sadder than I thought it would be. Uh, but th- so, thank you for that. Um, well, I completely me- understand. And if you have, if you hear any uh, otherworldly uh, howling on this end, it's my cats trying to participate in the show. Well, good. Well, cats are, are welcome. We do not discriminate against other life forms here on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> um, let me start by saying I, I usually start books reading the acknowledgments, find out who knows who in the. Uh, the, the world that we're talking about. And I see a lot of familiar names in yours, uh, people associated with the Maritime Studies Program here at East Carolina University, uh, Suzanne Grieve, uh, Bill Still, uh, others. Uh, I mentioned your name at a faculty uh, committee meeting this week, and uh, Nathan Richards, the current director of Maritime Studies, said, oh, Anna Holloway, yes, I know who she is. Um, so, so everybody in maritime studies knows who who you are, and I, I guess uh, uh, you you must know some of the folks here. Oh, I certainly do. In fact, um, a lot of people think that I did gr- graduate from the maritime studies program at ECU, even though I did not. <laughs> they try to get me into alumni photos all the time, but uh, we we cross tacks all the time um, in our careers, and so I I know many of them. That some of them are my uh, best friends. Well, it, it's uh, then, then we are friends by by once removal. So uh, welcome, uh, welcome aboard here at ECU. Uh, one thing that shows through this book, uh, certainly through the introduction, is a real sense of affection for the topic. Uh, I, I gather the monitor is not just a, a, a piece of floating iron uh, in your life. Is that fair to say? I think I think that is fair to say, and. Um, I know John and I wanted to really bring that through in this this particular volume. It's why we decided to call it our little monitor, um, because I do feel that the the vessel um, she has taken on kind of a uh, almost an anthropomorphized role in in, in both our lives. Um, I have been living with um, the cheese box on a raft since uh, two thousand. And um, so she kind of has come, become part of the family. <laughs> so let me ask about your background. You you were trained in, in history or archaeology or both. What what brought you to this? How did you come to the monitor subject? Oh, very roundabout way. Um, I was working on my PhD in um, early American history at the College of William and Mary. Um, dealing with the social history of uh, life on board ships, English merchant ships in the North Atlantic in the 16th and 17th century. Not not an ironclad in sight. Mm-hmm. But a job came open at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. And my, um, my dissertation advisor said, these don't come along very often. This is what mm-hmm. you want to do. Take the job. We'll worry about the dissertation later. 
Well, the job was director of education for the Mariners Museum, and I um, fell in with the whole crew there, and for about a year, my focus was truly on the early time period there, the age of exploration. And then John Hightower, who was CEO at the time, decided that uh, he needed someone to take over the Monitor Project, and he wanted someone who was going to look at it from a completely different perspective than someone who had been trained in Civil War history. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I found myself as the curator of an ironclad steamship, and I never well, looked back. <laughs> it, it, it is wonderful how uh, serendipity plays that role in, in public history careers. I had the same experience of, of getting a, a job at a museum while I was finishing my dissertation and uh, just falling in love with the, the world I found myself in and being able to pursue uh, history through that venue so I, I totally recognize how how that can happen the monitor has been how long has the monitor been at the uh, the the maritime uh, the mariners museum in newport news um they were designated the official repository in 1997 um so pieces and parts have been there since that time but it really wasn't until the large recovery efforts by noaa and the U.S. Navy um, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that um, it went from measuring things in ounces to measuring artifacts in tons. Currently, I believe they have 210 tons of the USS Monitor um, at Mariner's Museum, um, much of which is still undergoing conservation. And um, so I was fortunate to be there um, all the way up through 2014. So I've seen a lot of the artifacts come through and really show some amazing um, properties. So let me ask, and where are you now? Uh, Um, I'm currently the Museum Services Director for Search, Inc., which is a cultural resource management uh, firm. And so I I get to work with all the ships, (laughs) not just Uh, one. Uh, that's. Uh, I'm always curious about th- that because uh, people outside the the public history world wonder what do you do with a history degree, and I'm always interested in hearing about the places people work, where uh, you can make a, a very interesting and, and sometimes pretty decent living uh, practicing history outside of academia or or museums for that matter. Uh, what we're going to do now is take a short break and come back and talk about the monitor itself, its career on the water. Our guest tonight. Anna Gibson Holloway is co-author of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. 
Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Anna Gibson Holloway, co-author of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It is one of those rare books that is both uh, eye candy, uh, book that's beautiful to look at and you read it just for fun and academic academic legitimacy uh, referenced uh, written by people who know what they're talking about uh, it's good and it's good for you uh, so I, I've just enjoyed uh, spending the past week with this book the subject of the book of course is the USS monitor uh, Anna if, if I can since we're friends through the maritime program I hope I can use first names tonight um, oh, sure uh, the uh, the plot of the story, the idea that two warring nations would each independently come up with the idea to build a revolutionary new ship, start them different, you know, hundreds of miles apart on different days, and finish them so that they're both ready for their first battle within a day of each other, is not believable. It's it's a ridiculous coincidence. No novelist could get away with it. Um, how did they build the monitor so fast as to get down there and deal with the Merrimack uh, slash Virginia when they did? Well, it, it, it truly does boggle the mind when you look at it. Um, monitor really was um, a response to what the Confederates were doing with the burned-out hull of the Merrimack down at Gosport Navy Yard. Um, Merrimack, of course, being the... Um, the victim of Virginia's secession and the subsequent burning of the Navy Yard by fleeing uh, U.S. Navy troops in April of 61. So the Confederates were, were in need of a Navy, really, if you think about it. Um, they did not have any major warships um, that they could count um, And so what you end up having is... Um, you know, a creation of a vessel um, designed by John Luke Porter 
um, placed on the bones of the Merrimack. And so that was a known thing, that the um, union knew this was happening. It was being reported in the newspapers. And as I like to tell people, everyone had subscriptions to everyone else's newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the, the Union Navy did the only thing that they could possibly do in that situation. They put an ad in the newspaper for their own ironclad, which I just find find humorous in today's <laughs> uh, world. But um, they, they did um, advertise for ironclad steam vessels in a number of um, publications from Boston down to Baltimore. And uh, the idea was to elicit um, plans that could be um, executed quickly. Um, Congress had appropriated $1.5 million, and um, they wanted to get the most bang for their buck. So they were looking for um, vessels that did not conveniently cost $1.5 million, I might add. Several of the mm-hmm. proposals that came in did cost that much. Um, but proposals did come rolling in, and um, ultimately 17 proposals came into the U.S. Navy for ironclad steam vessels. Um, 16 of them were sent through the solicitation of the ad, and the 17th was that of John Erickson, who initially sent it directly to President Lincoln, although we have no evidence that Lincoln actually received that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into the convoluted story of how Erickson ends up being picked or not. Well, but, um, there, there's so many good things to say. Let's let's save that one and let the readers uncover it themselves. But let me ask about Erickson. Um, would you want to spend 30 minutes with him in a small room with him talking? Or is he an impossible genius you would rather just read about? Good question. I I think I, I feel like I've read enough about him now and read enough of his uh, letters that I feel I know him, so I could probably stand in the room to be in the room with him for that long. Uh, but uh, he he was a very um, impossible genius, as you put it. Um, so impossible that his wife finally uh, left America and went back to England, and they never saw each other again. <laughs> hmm. That tells you anything about his personality. So uh, now he was he came up with this, this revolutionary idea, although, as you note in the book, he didn't literally invent everything in it. The, the revolving gun turret, for example, the famous feature, uh, that was not his original idea, was it? No, it was not. In fact, the credit for that um, in America at least goes to Theodore Ruggles Timby, who had come up with the idea more for um, land-based fortifications, but ultimately Erickson and um, his consortium ended up paying some royalties to Timby for uh, the use of the turret. So he didn't simply steal the idea. He uh, uh, paid for it appropriately. No, he um, This is a just question of, of my own from reading the book and looking at the drawings I'm still trying to get a, a clear vision of how the turret rotated uh, within the ship it's the bottom of the turret is below the the deck you, you, one can see from the drawings that it's it sits lower than the the outside weather deck did it sit on a, a, a ring and rotate on ball bearings or rotate on the ring itself what how did friction not keep it from turning around? Oh, gotcha. It um, it sat on a brass ring that was inset into the deck, but it mm-hmm. was balanced on a single central shaft. 
um, that could be raised or lowered with um, really a wedge and a key um, below. And so the turret would be jacked up ever so slightly. Um, and the, the small steam engine that powered the turret could uh, turn it at the uh, rapid speed of two and a half RPM. So it's not it's not resting its full weight on the deck anymore. It's it's being held up by a basically a pole right in the center, lifting the whole thing up off the deck, so it can spin around. That's essentially, yes. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, th- there are so many remarkable things about this uh, uh, ship. That is, there's just one of many. Uh, the name Monitor has always struck me as uh, curious. How, uh, where did that come from? Well, that came from John Erickson himself. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, um, he named her that on January 20th of 1862. And um, whenever I'm trying to explain the name to, to children, I ask them mm-hmm. if they have hall monitors in their schools. Ah. Um, they all know that. And I said, well, think of the monitor as that hall monitor, not only for the Confederacy, um, but also um, to keep a, to monitor what uh, is happening in Europe as well. Because, as you know, there, the fear was that England may um, throw its weight behind the Confederacy. And so monitor was to keep that in check. So it, 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 it's a brilliant name in many ways. It's not... Uh not like anything else, uh, much as the ship itself is not like anything else. Uh, there are so many interesting details uh, in your book that I picked up. Uh, one of them, for example, I did not know was that if you were in the engine room of the monitor while it's underway, it probably smelled like bacon. Uh, yes. Um, the um, engine uh, has several uh, small oil cups on it where you would put tallow um, in them to help lubricate uh, the working parts of the engine. And um, so, yes, um, it very well would have smelled like uh, some kind of meat frying and probably pork. So so the heat of the engine itself would have caused that to melt and, and go from being a solid to uh, to a liquid lubricant and sizzling exactly. and delicious monitor engine uh, smell. Uh, that's the kind of thing that when, uh, you, you know, after reading about the Civil War for many years, including bits and pieces here and there about uh, the monitor, one starts to think, oh, you know, I'm familiar with this story. And then you get a tidbit like that, and the whole thing is worthwhile. Um, there are lots of other great tidbits throughout this book. Uh, there's a photo, for example, of a a dent on the armor of the monitor's turret, and when one looks closely at it, you realize it's on the it's on the wrong side. It's not a dent from a cannonball coming in; it's a bulge outward from inside the monitor's turret. How did that get there? Uh, well, that is that happened on one of my most favorite days in the monitor's uh, career, which is not the day she fought the um, Virginia in battle. It's the day she <laughs> fought her own crew. Um, which was March the 3rd before she'd ever left New York. Um, there had been some problems with the monitor um, the week before. Uh, her steering was kind of wonky. That's a technical term. Um, mm-hmm. And so Navy Brass wanted to come on board and observe, see if the problem had been fixed, and also see the guns being worked. Um, John Erickson had to invent a lot of things, and um, one... Two of the things that he um, are most important are the gun carriages on which those two 11-inch Dahlgren sit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Eleven-inch Dahlgrens tend to be around 13 feet long and need an equal amount of space for recoil, but the turret was only about 21 feet in diameter. So if you do the math, you see there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Two times 13, um, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. There needed to be an arresting mechanism. Um, and so Ericsson created this with a series of um, fins that were um, held onto rails inside the turret by friction. Um, and the braking mechanism was a wheel on the side of each carriage. Well, Alvin Steimers was showing off the guns, and he um, applied that engineering logic of righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Mm-hmm. Only that's not what Erickson had applied, and so he had loosened the gun carriage instead of tightening the brakes. So, Dahlgren number one bangs into the interior of the turret, making dent number one. Um, so he does, he applies that same logic. It must, I must have done the wrong thing to the other cannon. And um, unfortunately, it was a mirror image of the first. So the same thing <laughs> happens twice. So we have two nice big dents inside the turret that were found um, once the conservators began doing their work. So, so it's a recoiling cannon from within and a test firing dent the armor from the inside. Another fascinating thing, and this I did not know about the the ship, was that Ericsson designed uh, shields uh, in a, a layer inside the armor on the inside of the turret uh, to prevent spalling or the, the fragmentation of the armor, uh, which happens, in I guess, in, in armored vehicles, uh, tanks today. If you hit it with a, a solid shot, the vibration can cause the inside surface to flake off and thousands of tiny fragments go through the tank and turn everything into hamburger. Uh, you don't want that to happen to your crew. And Erickson apparently anticipates this, I guess, he, as he puts up a series of shields on the inside of the turret. Do Correct. I have that right? They're metal shields. Yes, mm-hmm. you do. You do. And um, the remains of those were also found. I mean, that's where the, the dent was, actually. The mm-hmm. um, main portion of the dent is in that uh, little shield, the mantelette. And um, the they're very thin iron, so some of them did not survive too well um, being underwater. But um, our crew at the Mariner's Museum Conservation Lab, they did um, castings of all of them. So even if the metal did not survive, um, the uh, shape of the, the shields themselves um, still survives for people well, to they would, they would, and, and they would prove important in the battle, as the Merrimack, uh, Virginia does strike the turret with its its projectiles uh, the one last pre-battle question uh, the USS Monitor was actually not owned by the USS Navy when it was the United States Navy when it was in battle it's still Ericsson's private boat apparently is that correct that is correct um, while he turned the vessel over to the Navy um, in February of 1862, it technically was still his and his consortium um, because the way the contract was written, um, he would not receive final payment until she had proven herself under enemy fire. And he was so, so confident that she would do that, that he, mm-hmm. he, it was still his, but. So this is his private vessel going out there and fighting, fighting for his country. Uh, that's a pretty rigorous test, a buyer's test, to have go out and actually fight a battle before they'll they'll pay for it. Uh, 
the question I want to ask, well, well, we know the outcome of the battle. Anyone listening to the show knows that the, the two ironclads fought each other uh, for the better part of a day and hit each other more than once with their cannon, but neither was able to decisively damage the other. Uh, one point that, that you make in the book is that the the Virginia was had set out to sink wooden vessels and had explosive shell for its cannon, not uh, armor-piercing solid bolts of metal that would, that could have been available. Would those have gone through the, the monitor's armor, do you know? It's, it's hard to say. Um, it's very likely there would have been more damage had those bolts been on board. Um, the, the Confederacy and, and John Mercer Brooke in particular did have information on the monitor because all the magazines in the North were publishing pictures and information about um, the vessel. So it, it's likely you would have seen far more damage with those, but um, it was also not known that the monitor was that imminent um, to arrive in Hampton Roads. So they weren't, they didn't come out ready to fight that. Um, conversely, the monitor was firing reduced powder charges, as I understand it, because they, they hadn't fully understood what the guns could bear. Could the monitor if they, have done anything to the, the Merrimax armor with, with bigger bags of gunpowder? Again, it's a what if, but um, yes, they, I think they could have cracked some of the plates um, pretty effectively, but only if they had been able to hit consistently in um, a concentrated area. Um, there, there's a lot of debate over whether they should have put more powder in the Dahlgrens. Um, in fact, one of the Swedish crew members claims that he did um, um, put double charges in both of the guns um, at one point and made more dents inside the turret. <laughs> Hmm. So, so the outcome might have been different, but but we can never really know this. Uh, what we do know is that in the aftermath of the battle, the North breathed a huge sigh of relief because this uh, Confederate ironclad monster was not going to have free reign to go up the Potomac and shell the White House now. Uh, and the Monitor, uh, you report in a, a delightful chapter, becomes a pop culture hero uh, we see it in, in all kinds of imagery, poems, music, uh, models, advertisements. Uh, we're going to have to take another short break, but let me leave you with this question uh, when we come back. is uh, Of all these uh, uh, representations of the Monitor in popular culture that follow the battle and that continue to the present day, uh, which ones do you find most memorable or most intriguing or, or most amusing? So we'll come back and ask that question of our guest, Anna Gibson Holloway, co-author of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest 
show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Anna Gibson Holloway, co-author of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It is a fascinating book about the career of the USS Monitor, uh, and both its career in battle and, as we'll talk about in just a moment, uh, how wreck of the Monitor has been uh, rescued and uh, archaeologically uh, discovered, preserved, uh, is under conservation today at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, but, let, Dana, let me ask you the question we left off with. Uh, of all the, the ads, the songs, the poems, the the, the many ways the Monitor appears in pop culture in the North after after its famous battle, uh, are there any that you found particularly uh, moving or impressive or amusing? Uh, what What stuck with you? Uh, well, I can think of, of three different ones in just right off the bat. I mean, mm-hmm. what what is amazing to me is that the battle between Monitor and Virginia happens on March 9th. And by March 11th, the Philadelphia newspapers have people trying to sell umbrellas by using the battle. Um, so it hit popular consciousness that quickly. Um, and so just the, the war of, of bad poems in the Philadelphia newspapers um, <laughs> Uh, over the next few days is just hysterical. You'll have to look those up in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Moving forward in time, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for the monitor top refrigerator. Um, I owned one at one point. Um, but, you know, just the fact that in 1927, people are still using the monitor to um, to name a refrigerator that has what for all the world looks like a turret on top of it. Um, and then... 
I guess most recently, um, the Greenpoint Brooklyn band Bishop Allen um, did an absolutely wonderful rock song um, about uh, the Battle of Hampton Roads and how the Monitor was built in their neighborhood in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and how the men on board um, just, um, you know, they, they knew they were a part of history, but they didn't know how much. And it's just, it's just a wonderful thing. And that was released in the 2000s. But what was the name of the band again? Bishop Allen. Bishop Allen. I'm typing that in because I'm going to Google that when the show's over and see if they're on YouTube. Um, so they are. people are the still called the Monitor. So the Monitor. I'll be looking for that, and listeners, you can do the mm-hmm. same. Um, well, you make a point about the men in, in that song. The men know that they are part of history, and you make an interesting point in the book that. The ship and its its battle uh, revolutionized naval history, and everyone seems aware of it at the time, that the, the old paradigm of the wooden sailing ship is not going to withstand this new invention. Uh, but there's also a, a revolution in the role of the sailors that you talk about. It's the, the argument, uh, I think it's, uh, David Mindell makes in the Iron Coffins book, that mm-hmm. Now, instead of being warriors at sea, they are going to be, those who go to sea to fight the enemy are going to be engineers, are going to be mechanics, uh, are, are going to be behind a metal shield. They're not going to face the enemy's cannonballs bravely and shout, damn the torpedoes. They're going to be behind a, a wall of iron. unable to see the enemy or be seen or be touched. Uh, It's going to be a very different kind of war. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, it it really is a a sea change, pardon the pun, um, Mm -hmm. for how... um, how war will be fought at sea um, from that point on. And, um, you know, the, the men on board Monitor, they, they understood that they were being brave by being in this experimental craft, but they also, one of the, the paymaster wrote to his wife and said, don't worry, there's not even danger enough to give us glory. Um, and that whole thought of not being an instrumental part of the battle, you're more of an operative um, <laughs> that, you know, changes the way the men see themselves. In fact, one sailor said there's not even any sailorizing to do on board. I wonder wonder if there's a comparison to be made uh, with the drone era that we are entering today, that that warriors can fight in Afghanistan by sitting at a console in Arizona and directing a drone toward a target. Uh, They're not in any personal danger, but it is. I wonder if if we're if if that shift today uh, has its echo in what the mer- the sailors experienced on the monitor. Uh, but let me I push think so, forward. Absolutely. Oh, go go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say I think so. Absolutely. I mean, you see some of the same things said by drone pilots and um, air, you know, um, air force pilots that you see being said by the sailors and the um, the engineers back in the Civil War. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's an interesting way how, how history can can echo itself in these in this fashion. Um, now, in the letter, the sailor says, you know, we're not in any danger. There's no sailor. Another one says there's no sailorizing to do. But in fact, uh, the monitor meets its end in a way that shows 
nautical skills, naval skills are still necessary, and indeed there's a lot of danger uh, sailing on the ship. How did the, the monitor meet its end? Uh, well, monitor was ordered south to Beaufort, North Carolina, and then presumably she would have gone on to Charleston. Um, and she was ordered at the end of uh, December of 1862, um, and the captain, John Pine Bankhead, was told to leave, you know, when the weather afforded an opportunity. Um, and so he does leave um, and on uh, December 29th uh, from Hampton Roads, and they head south. Um, and everything's fine um, for the first day, um, although uh, a front begins moving in, and um, ultimately um, the storm becomes worse and worse. And about 16 miles off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, um, a little bit after 1 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Eve, 1862, um, Monitor succumbed to what would be considered a moderate gale. Um, but keep in mind, she had 18 inches of freeboard, um, the seas were just mer- purely overwhelming her, and um, it was fortunate that they did have um, a, co- a consort vessel, the Rhode Island, um, that had Monitor in tow. Um, the men of the Rhode Island um, are heroes all um, for taking tiny boats across to the Monitor and trying to get as many men off the ship before she sank as possible. It, it's a it's a great story. I, reading it as I was reading it, I thought, oh, you can make a much better movie than Titanic out of this scene right here. Oh yeah, uh, it's very dramatic. The uh, so the site of the sinking was in deep enough water that it was went unmarked. When was the the wreck of the Monitor found? Um, it was initially found in um, 1973. Um, announced as positive ID for the monitor in March of 1974 and then designated a National Marine Sanctuary on this day, 44 years ago, um, in 1975. So um, today's a really important day in monitor's history. Not only was she launched on January 30th, um, 1862, but she became the first National Marine Sanctuary in 1975 on this day. Well, this is an appropriate day then to to have you here. I'm glad you're joining us for this. Uh, the most dramatic of of the archaeological efforts to rescue parts of the wreck, which were deteriorating and had they remained underwater indefinitely, would would be lost for all time. Uh, certainly must be the rescue of the turret, and I'll, I'll leave it to listeners to get a copy of this book and read about the story of how the turret was ultimately raised and brought up. Tell us about what it looks like now and, and where where listeners can go to see it. Well, the USS Monitor Center is at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia, and it is um, America's National Maritime Museum. Uh, the conservation lab there has um, most of the large artifacts on display. Um, occasionally, they will drain the tanks, um, and you can see the turret up close. Um, but you can still still see the, the turret and the engine and the, the cannons from the viewing platform there in the conservation lab. Um, it, the, the transformation that these young men and women um, of the Monitor Center have wrought upon the, these artifacts is nothing less than spectacular. Um, soon these, these items will look almost as though they were still in use in 1862. They are uh, currently, as you mentioned, the tank, uh, when items have been submerged for a long time, they 
absorb the salt from the ocean. They're covered with concretions. They, they can't just be put on dry land and put on an ex- exhibition. So they're still in water uh, most of the time. Correct. Uh, how, how long will that desalinization process go on? Um, well, they, they keep having to revise their estimates, but right now, um, the, the belief is that all of the items that are currently undergoing conservation at Mariner's Museum will be out of conservation um, by 2029. Okay, so another 10 years and we will get to see everything. But listeners, you can see it now when you go there, and I, I've been there and it just is spectacular to, uh, uh, to see this, this massive uh, piece of American history rescued from the, the sea bottom and uh, now presented. The uh, there are so many interesting details in the story of the uh, the way this was brought up. Uh, one of them, for example, uh, was was the use of saturation diving technique. Uh, that's something we've never talked about on Civil War Talk Radio. Can you give us a, a thirty second <laughs> description? U.S. Navy divers are amazing. Um, these uh, uh, folks were at um, uh, saturation um, gases in their systems that allowed them to live at um, a depth of 240 feet so they could um, work for eight-hour stretches at a time, and that's how they were able to bring this amazing historic icon up. So instead of... the Normally, you, you dive down, the pressure is a problem, you come back, decompress gradually, and you can only stay down a short time. These guys were under under pressure when they came back up, and uh, right, they, they lived under pressure. Right, they basically. Yeah, uh-huh. they live under pressure for several days at a time. It's just an amazing uh, technique, and, and so much of these things were done. Uh, why not bring up the whole monitor? Uh, the cost would be prohibitive, and quite frankly, some of it will, will never be recoverable. It's um, Some of the hull is just too deteriorated. Um, and really, you don't want to bring it up unless you have a, a capacity to do conservation on all of it. Um, and there's no lab in the world that's able to do that right at this time. So it's, it's really keep it in situ, and perhaps at some time later, um, the NOAA will decide to recover it or perhaps leave it down there for uh, divers to enjoy. Right. And it is a marine sanctuary. Divers uh, can visit it, uh, but it's not a place that, but hopefully it will be shielded from things like uh, boat anchors and fishing gear and other things on the bottom that, that cause damage to wrecks uh, because it is in a designated sanctuary area. Well, there's Precisely. there are so many fascinating stories in this book, uh, and I think I've made clear I really enjoyed it. Uh, listeners, you will want to treat yourself to a copy of Our Little Monitor, The Greatest Invention of the Civil War. It's uh, interesting, new stuff on every page. Uh, there's a whole section of, of first-person accounts we haven't even talked about, uh, and, as well as the... Uh, description and analysis of the the ship and its recovery. So, uh, I this one uh, I highly recommend. Uh, and Anna, I thank you for your efforts and and helping bring the monitor uh, to the state we have it in today. And 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 best of luck with uh, wherever your career takes you next. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for your kind words. I've really enjoyed it. And listeners, as always. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.